The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everybody. Nice to see you here today. Probably noticed the tables in the lobby, so it's a slightly different kind of Sunday. Once a quarter around the solstices or equinoxes, we uh, have our quarterly gathering. So a little later, 20 minutes or so, we'll do the formal refuges and precepts. It takes about 10 minutes. I'll explain that when we get there. And then we have a potluck afterward. So even if you didn't bring food, you see there's plenty, so feel free to stay if you'd like for that. And then I usually take, you know, the first 15 minutes or so and just talk about this ancient ritual that's happened, you know, throughout Buddhist cultures for a long time. And it really has to do with shared values. And, you know, these values ultimately aren't Buddhist any more than they're anything else. You know, they're human values that probably we can all relate to. So I just... In the ceremony, as we recite the traditional three refuges and five precepts around non-harming, as we recite that together, it's nice to have that sense, oh yeah, these are human values, basic human values. It's not uh, hard to relate. Like the first refuge, taking refuge in the Buddha. Now the word Buddha, of course, is very specific to the Buddhist tradition. But what that's pointing to, you know, what that is a sort of placeholder for is taking refuge in the experience of freedom. And this is something we all know, even if you think you don't know what freedom is. Because if you know what tightness is, if you know the experience of restriction and weight and heaviness and, you know, being oppressed one way or another, you know, even being oppressed by your body aching or being oppressed by having too much to do, being oppressed by not knowing what to do. These are all forms of non-freedom. And the interesting thing is, you know, in a dualistic world, if you know one end, you have at least some sense of the other end because it's not this. So as, you know, otherworldly as uh, nibbana or nirvana or the cessation of suffering might you might imagine it is you know it can seem very you know like philosophical or something the buddha experiences but not people like us or something but if we know the experience of suffering if we're willing to get interested in suffering and the experience subtle or not so subtle of oppression and tension and stress then just in that, with that interest, that curiosity, naturally will arise in the mind. Oh, you know, if there's this, then there's this, you know. That's not a stretch for us. And why not acknowledge that possibility? Because, you know, it's interesting as we experience stress and confusion and difficulty in life, the great tragedy is, our response to that is to proliferate around it in a way that creates more tightness and more stress. 
Instead, you know, we can use the experience of stress in life, difficulty in life, to remember the possibility of not this. But we have to really understand something about the stress, right? Because normally, like if I'm confused about a choice I have to make, or if I'm just dealing with the implications of having an older body, or I'm in a intimate relationships, and those are often difficult at times, at least, if not a lot of the time. And so, if I have one of these kinds of problems, generally, I locate the problem in a strange way. We have it's like this, uh, this very clever way of always locating the suffering out there. You know, so like if you're having difficulty in a close relationship, isn't it interesting how the problem is out there? We objectify the problem and we put it out there. But actually, the real problem is my heart hurts here. You know, there's confusion. The yucky feeling of confusion is here. The shame or the doubt is here. So the, in order to really have a sense of freedom, we have to have enough insight, enough wisdom that understands that when we're suffering, the suffering is here. Like if you don't like the way the country's being run right now, that the pain of that is here in the mind and heart. It's not like the country is actually suffering. The only thing that can suffer is a heart, and the only heart we know is this one. So if there's suffering, if we have a sense that there's suffering, then it's right here, in the moment, in this moment, in this heart or mind or whatever you want to call this experience of the mind and body. But it's right here. Does that make sense? How we tend to kind of conceptualize our suffering and we give it a context. We kind of build a structure, a conceptual structure that holds, in a sense, holds our suffering. And in a funny way, we feel like we get some distance from our suffering. Of course we can. It's always here. It's not like it can go anywhere else or be anywhere else. It's always in our heart. So to have a sense, in order to take refuge in the Buddha, in order to take refuge in the possibility, in the very real, present possibility of freedom, release, the unshakable release of the heart, as the Buddha suggests, then we have to understand that dukkha, suffering, stress, is always here. And the release of that then is also here. And if there is this, there can be this. And that's a very, that the development, the kind of cultivation of that insight, that understanding, is very liberating. Because one of the most uh, oppressive kinds of tension, stress, is the feeling of, of being overwhelmed or being afflicted by life and feeling helpless about it. Because it's out there. You know, it's this relationship I can't get out of, or this job I can't get out of, or this country I can't get out of, or this body I can't get out of. And so we feel um, helpless. And the, the refuge, taking the refuge of the Buddha, is mean, it means that to some degree we understand that Suffering is here and freedom is also here. You can't have the experience of suffering without the possibility of freedom. And that, that's not like a theoretical understanding. We really get that. That the, the tension is, a, is sort of being constructed or being created 
moment by moment right here in the mind and body. And so the release is also right here. It's in the not doing of the tension, not doing of the suffering, not doing of the reactivity or the resistance. And so, of course, in the tradition, we personify this freedom. You know, we have statues. The point of the statue is to make it easier to remember freedom. You know, whether you bring to mind some person you know or some saint you've heard of, it doesn't actually matter whether they're free. What matters is do we have a way of reminding ourselves of the possibility of freedom? Because like I said earlier, it's very easy, whether we acknowledge it consciously or not, it's very easy to feel helpless with our the difficulty we experience, the stress or suffering. We just feel like it's like we start to accept a kind of resignation. Well, this is just how it is being a human being. Now, I even often say, hopefully for in a useful way, you know, it's that easy being a human being. So it's true that it isn't easy being a human being, but that doesn't imply, it shouldn't imply that that's it. You know, that's the sum total of truth. It's not easy being a human being. Life is a, you know, a difficult process and then it's over. You know, that's, I mean, I'm not saying that that's a wrong view or that's, it's, it's not understandable that we might come to that view. And in a way, that view maybe you has sort of a little bit of an existential uh, view to it, you know. There's some real wisdom to that view, like just acknowledging that. But it, but that's not sort of the sum of my experience, and it's certainly not what the Buddha taught, that it's difficult and then it ends. And if we really get interested in our own experience, just tracking, this is the, really brings us to the second refuge, which is I take refuge in the Dhamma, or Dharma, the way it is. But this also is code, just like Buddha is code for freedom, the release, the unshakable release of the heart. So whatever, however the heart's bound up, we're taking refuge in the possibility of that heart unbinding, releasing. And the heart, we're talking about it moment to moment. So however it's bound up in this moment, then that can that's what can release. Not, Theoretically, the heart releases, but however we experience the heart right now, being defended, being numb, being bound up, being closed, being fearful, being needy, that tension, it's that stress that we take refuge, that the unbinding of that, the release of that is possible. We may not understand how to support that release, but we hold out that possibility that it doesn't have to be bound up, this mind and heart. And like I said, it really brings us to the second refuge, taking refuge in the Dhamma. This in Buddhism, we tend not to personalize on purpose in a way, because it it isn't useful. Just like it can be useful to personalize freedom, because like when we see somebody who's moving through a difficult time of their life, but they have a lot of spaciousness in their mind, a lot of equanimity, a lot of sense of allowing things to take their natural course, but not disengaging, staying engaged, participating, making choices, but understanding that whatever's happening has a lot of influences. And just sort of going with the flow, as we say. You know, so that person can remind us, or a statue of the Buddha, or some saint can remind us, sort of be a placeholder. But with Dhamma, 
we're really pointing to something very impersonal and sort of surprising what it is. It's the present moment. Dhamma really is the placeholder for the present moment. And we don't personify the present moment on purpose because when we talk about the present moment, we really talk about allowing the natural sensitivity of the mind. You know, the mind naturally knows, is sensitive to how it is now. And as we open to that in, to experience in a direct way, it has the flavor of being impersonal. We create the sense of things being personal. The back pain is personal. The sound of people moving in the room, it's personal because it's bothering me. Or I like the fact that there are other people here, so it makes me more comfortable. But it, we always convert present moment experience into something that feels personal. It's like we're making the ego feel comfortable by doing this translation. And we're doing it, the mind, of course, has to do it moment by moment by moment. It's always turning things into some personal experience. Sort of retranslating Dhamma the way it is into something personal. So when we talk about the continuity of mindful attention, or just being awake, being present, we're really talking about not doing that translation, not converting sensation, sound, sight, thought into something personal. So it's just thoughts being known, just sensations being known, just sounds being known, just sights being seen, and just tastes and smells being known. We're seeing these phenomena, you know, this is why we have the word empty or emptiness in Buddhism, empty of that self-centered translation happening. Now, it may be happening, but we're not being confused by it. You know, that part of the mind has a lot of momentum where we start, where we uh, basically through the process of perception. You know, perception, that's the part of the mind that's recognizing experience. But see, perception is doing that translation. So when you see somebody, you recognize somebody in the room, somebody you know, somebody you've talked with before, you perceive that person, you know, you recognize that person, we say, right? And we recognize that person because the visual experience, immediately the mind does something with that visual experience, and we then lose contact with the visual experience, and we get attached to that mental process we call recognition or perception. The concept of what we just saw. We saw color and shape and form, then what I really see is Kyoko or Marianne or Elizabeth or Annette. You know, I see the concept. I know the concept. And I'm not paying attention to the shape and the color and the form anymore. The same with sound, same with our thoughts, too. So we keep converting, but we can learn to relax that habit or learn not to be confused by that habit. And that's why we take refuge in Dhamma. It's like, we take refuge in, this is really useful thing to do, taking refuge in Dhamma, this continuity of bare, sometimes we use the word bare attention. There's nothing bare about it, it's just, it's just awareness, on kind of decorated awareness. Just like a, an image that's often used, it's not a perfect image, but it's, it's, it's a pretty good metaphor, it's like a mirror, like a hollow mirror doesn't 
add its influence. I mean, maybe if it's a funhouse mirror and it's bent in a certain way, it puts its spin on things. But a good mirror simply reflects how it is. So when the mind is uh, not, when our mind isn't under the influence of our self-centered agendas, and we basically discovered, rediscovered the capacity just to know, just to be aware, then we start to see Dhamma. And then the connection between uh, some sense of freedom and then that continuity of awareness, they really start to work together. So when we have that bare attention, that ongoing mindfulness, without being confused by taking things personally, then we really see how we create the experience of non-freedom, stress. We can't really see it otherwise. When we're taking things personally, that experience of created suffering is masked, and we just don't see it. So in Buddhism, you know, we highlight this. These three things, I haven't gotten to the third yet, but these three things are called the triple gem. And it, it's really like... Uh, at the heart of getting on this path of awakening. Whether you're a Buddhist or not, I believe, you know, you have to you have to be interested in freedom. You have to be interested in stress and the freedom from that stress. And you have to be interested in awareness because as far as I can understand, and certainly the way the Buddha taught, there's no way to be free from the habit of the mind getting tight without cultivating, without sort of uncovering this capacity to be awake in this clean, simple way. To be aware without being confused by our habit of taking everything personally. So we start with easy things like the breath, you know. It's so, you know, it's a challenge because the habit of taking things personally is so deep and strong, has so much momentum. So we use simple things, hearing, just being with the body sitting, being with the body walking, being with the breathing process. And we just practice like letting the breathing process be what it is without the mind, without being confused by the habit of the mind, which is in a sense saying, it's my breath coming in, it's my breath going out. I don't like this breath, it's too short or it's too rough. Or I like this breath. Or is my breath as good as that person's breath? You know, there are all the different ways that it, the experience can feel personal whether it, we're paying attention to the body or the breath or hearing. And we're learning to, with continuity, not take it personally. Just let things be what they are without that added peace. And that, with this sort of governing principle of freedom and not freedom, right? Like that, that's our only, in a sense, our only agenda the interest in freedom and and really locating that that dynamic of freedom no freedom that sort of great issue it's always right here it's never somewhere else it's not like we're trying to be free later that never makes sense if you ever find yourself like later when I'm on retreat or later tomorrow when I'm sitting I'll take care of the see it, it never works that way it always has the work we do in spiritual life always has to be now in a sense, it's, it's the only thing we have. And so if you ever catch yourself putting things off, then that habit 
in a way, is like the uh, definition of delusion. Just like the definition of wisdom is understanding it's all about now. It's all oh, it's already here. Whatever problem there could possibly be and whatever resolution to the problems that could possibly be, it's all here. So any sort of part of the mind's conditioning habits that somehow locates it somewhere else, that's really delusion. And it's, a, it's an avoidance pattern, basically. We're avoiding doing the only work we can do, which is addressing the issue of freedom, stress, and the release of stress here and now through the continuity of awareness. And then the third refuge is we take refuge in the beautiful qualities of wisdom and compassion that arise, that naturally, organically arise in people who are taking refuge in the Buddha knowing Dhamma. <laughs> you know, the aspiration for freedom, seeing things as they are. When you put those two things together, when those two things are happening in the mind, then beautiful things will start arising. Moments of kindness, moments of forgiveness, moments of, of ringing clarity. And when we see them in ourselves and when we see them in our friends and in our teachers, we take refuge in that. We take refuge in that natural display of wisdom and compassion we see from time to time in those around us. It's like... Uh, you know, they're like uh, pure faith vitamins. When you see beautiful, like people effortlessly being generous or people effortlessly being clear, you know, and helping us to sort of see what needs to be done in the moment or people who are effortlessly funny in a way that doesn't harm anybody. You know, these moments, and they're, they're not personal. This is the important thing. So we don't say, God, I wish I was like Edwin or, or something like that. What we want to do, you know, what, what the three refuges do, you know, Dhamma sees that beautiful moment of kindness or wisdom and understands it's not personal. That means it's available. You know, it isn't about Edwin or it isn't about anybody. It's just a natural arising when the aspiration, the understanding of the possibility of freedom is seeing things as they are. And then letting go happens. And out of that letting go, you know, the heart, the body and mind, it unfolds without greed, anger and delusion, without uh, anything that would be uh, a problem. So we start seeing, you know, in ourselves and others, those moments of freedom being expressed. And we call that, in Buddhism, we call that Sangha. Sangha isn't, doesn't, it, we sometimes use it just sort of more generally as spiritual community, but if we were all a bunch, bunch of thugs, <laughs> or like just lost in our neediness, or lost in our aversion, and our, you know, whatever, negative emotions, you know, <laughs> we would not be honoring our spiritual community. We'd be thinking of reasons not to be here. But, you know, we are attracted often to come together because every once in a while we see in each other and we see in ourselves really beautiful qualities. 
and that it sort of like makes us attracted to doing the practice. We feel grateful. We feel inspired. This is the energy we need to sort of remember that stress and freedom, it's always here, it's possible, and then to, again, pick up the practice of that simple continuity of awareness, not taking things personally, but just seeing things naturally. Sights are just sights, sounds are just sounds, sensations are just sensations, thoughts and emotions are just thoughts and emotions. And just beginning to correlate that that continuity of awareness with the intention or the aspiration for the heart to be released, to be unburdened, that that sets in motion something that is truly beautiful, worthy of respect, worthy of devotion, you know, worthy of building a center, worthy of doing sort of awkward things, you know, that we normally do, you know, like you have somebody sitting on a platform in front of you or, you know, because a lot of us grew up in religious institutions that felt a little hollow as we matured, you know, and we thought, oh, I'm done with that. And here you find yourself at a place like Common Ground, which is a lot like going to church on Sunday, especially the Sunday morning program. And it can feel like, oh, God, here we go again. (laughs) So the key is we have to take, you know, whatever this is, and we have to ground it in our moment-to-moment reality. Otherwise, it is just the same old, same old. We have to really understand how it has to do with our heart being bound up and the heart being released. And so that's why we do the three refuges once a quarter. Just a reminder that we are taking refuge in something. We're not just resigned that life is difficult for human beings or some sort of sentimental view that it's all going to be okay, you know. But to understand that there is a dynamic and that dynamic is happening always right now and always in our heart and it's relevant. And when we're suffering, we're really suffering. There is the experience. Whether it's sort of true in some ultimate sense doesn't matter. In our experience, it's true. There's a suffering human being here, you know, and I don't like it. And I want it to be done. So we have that actual experience. So why not address it? You know, why not make it front and center? And the three refuges just help help us make it front and center. There is this experience of suffering. Whether I'm suffering right now or not, I understand it. I understand it's there, that it's there in life. And I also understand release is there in life. So I'm going to take up this great matter of stress and the end of stress. You know, and I'm going to cultivate that continuity of awareness. And I'm going to begin to understand how it all works, how the beautiful qualities can shine forth, and how the really ugly qualities can shine forth. And not to be afraid of either one, you know, but just to understand. Because if we don't understand, we can't really participate fully in our lives. So let's do the the (coughs) refuge and precept ceremony. Let's see, it's on page 35. Thanks. And a few people might need to share. And this would take about 10 minutes. Thirty-five? 
So like I suggested, we do, some of us at least, use this uh, gesture. It's called Anjali. You probably, some of you Catholics recognize it too. <laughs> and from the East, it's just a gesture of gratitude and thanks. So feel free to use that if you'd like. And then in the Buddhist tradition, bowing is sort of a big deal. Here at Kamagam, we generally, when we're bowing, just do sort of the top fifth of the body. <laughs> It's our compromise. <laughs> so you can do that too if you like. So I'm going to ring the bell three times to begin. You can do a little bow at the end if you want. Then we acknowledge the, our teacher, the Buddha, homage to the Buddha three times. And then we take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha three times. So Dutyampi, Tatyampi, that just means for the second time and for the third time. So we're going to do it in the language that the tradition has been, been recorded in Pali. Then we'll do an English translation, a rough translation. And then we'll read the five precepts. We'll do the Pali, then the English. And then a volunteer will read Thich Nhat Hanh, a well-known teacher's comments on each of the five precepts. So I need somebody to read the comments from precept number one. Anybody want to do that? Just that paragraph on 36. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Number two, Dan. Number three, Mary Bath. Did your hand go up? Oh, Mary. Oh, yeah. Mary, you can do three. Spruce, you can do four. Somebody to do five? Yeah, Charlotte will do five. Okay, so let's begin. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.